Amen. Amen. I heard one of you. Everybody said, right, we're awake today. All right, let's say amen. So, because here's the thing. I want you to grab a Bible. If you've got it on your phone, we'll put it on the screen as well. But I would love for you to actually have your Bible in your hand. If it's on your phone, your iPad, uh, wherever you've got one. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. I basically crafted the framework of three different sermons this week because I didn't know um, where I wanted to go. And that usually means that I'm a little fired up and we're going to have some fun today. Is that okay? Because you really don't have a choice. You're socially distanced from me. You can't stop me. Um, There's a pandemic. So Isaiah 54, I want to jump right in this morning to our scripture. We have been in a series for about three weeks exploring this idea of healing the things that still hurt us in our lives. And we've talked about the fact that all of us have wounds. All of us have things that, that, that come back to our present from our past. We have things that we maybe haven't been able to forgive others of, or we haven't been forgiven of ourselves, or we just have things that maybe we don't need forgiveness, but they just, they hurt, and they won't let us go. And so the words or actions of others play into that, but our own actions play into that as well. And so we talked about the fact that God's very nature, part of who God is, his essence is that he loves, his being causes him, right? Like your being, you have certain things that you love, right? I think part of my being is tacos. I just love that. You've heard me say that. Part of God's being is he loves finding lost things, finding lost people, restoring lost and broken parts of our lives, and he wants to do this work of healing. See, when we, when we read the Gospels about Jesus' life, we, I think this is how we think of the Gospels, right? Like we read the Christmas story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we go to the end and we get the resurrection story, the Easter story. So we've got Christmas and Easter, and by the way, that's when most people come to church. So I think we miss the central part of the Gospel, which says, be in church all the time. But we read the Gospels and we think it's just Christmas and Easter and you've got the birth and then you've got the cross and the empty tomb and all that stuff that happens in the middle is kind of like filler space. Like they're just, they got to fill their books. They got to fill their, this is like writing the report for the teacher. If it's eight to ten pages, the intro, the conclusion matters, but the body, you just kind of BSing your way through it, right? Like, that's kind of what we think. In the Gospels, we tend to think of this as filler space. But I want to say to you today, and don't miss this, the healings in the Gospel, the miracles of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, are the good news. They are the Gospel, just as much as his birth is, just as much as his resurrection is. You see, we see Jesus healing more than 20 times in the Gospels, not just to fill the plot lines. That's not what, about, what it's about. He does it more than 20 times because he is a healer. He heals because he's a healer, amen? Like Jesus does that, and that means, and I want you to listen well to this, that means that he wants to deal with whatever still hurts you. We don't read the resurrection story and go, well, that's cool that that happened to Jesus, but that's not for me. We love that. That's part of our story. So when we read the healings, that's part of our story to him. So I'm continuing to challenge you in this series. Be honest with whatever that pain is. Bring it to Jesus. Bring that pain to him. So we've, we've talked about all these things, forgiveness, reconciliation, God's heart to heal. And today I want to simply offer a verse-by-verse exploration of a passage that I think gives us a very clear picture of who God is, period. Like I don't have a lot of fluff or creativity behind this message. I'm just going to preach. You got no choice. This is a hope-filled passage. It's a portrait of life and those who pursue not only full restoration, but new paths to the future. And and you know what? Ultimately, when we need healing, we don't need steps and processes. I've tried to give you some of that, but we don't really need that. We don't need a process for healing. We don't need tips. What we need is God himself. 
Amen? Like, we don't need the, the, the principles of how to heal, the new self-help book. We need God himself to be who he is. So if you're here and you're longing for healing, but you're not sure how or if it can really happen, I want you to hang on, because here's what we're going to do today. I'm not the only one preaching. We're going to preach to each other. Amen? You're going to get to look at each other through those weird masks that you're wearing. Some of you got some really designer masks. Well done. I wonder how much you're spending on them. Do you know we're behind budget in the church? Feel free to sell those masks. I want to read you this, this passage, and, and, and again, we're going, to, we're going to break it down. Isaiah 54, 1 through 17 is where we're going to spend our time. This passage is a frozen moment, by the way, in a bigger story. If you've ever tried to read the book of Isaiah, it's 66 chapters long, and it is God looking at his people in this passage who have suffered, who are in the middle of suffering and hurt, and God looks at them and calls them to hope. Now, I want you to understand this chapter takes place immediately after four chapters that are known as the servant songs of Isaiah. And, and the, the, Isaiah is this huge book of prophecy, but this one section, chapter 49 through 52, you should read them this week, are called the servant songs because they center on the prophecies of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who would restore hope to God's people. And each of these songs in those chapters builds to this chapter in chapter 54. And this is like the postlude. Right? Like, this is the thing that everybody goes after all the prophecies. Here's what hope looks like. So this is after all that hope played out in the prophecies of Jesus 700 years before he would come. This is the invitation to actually live into the truth of those, hope, of those hopes. So the first part of this letter is an invitation to God's people. And here's what God does in this passage. We're going to start in verse 1. He compares his people, the Israelites, to a disgraced woman. Look at verse 1. It says, Sing barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Now, man, this, is, by the way, is poetry today. This is not like principles. This is poetry. Everybody say poetry. Look at your neighbor. You say poetry. We're talking poetry today. Guys, get over it. We're going to go, all right? This is, this is, we'll say it this way, guys. This is like the hip-hop of the Bible, okay? Maybe that'll make you feel a little bit better. This is a way to open. The, the prophet opens up and he says, sing, barren woman. See, here's the very first point that I want you to grab out of this. There is hope in empty places. There is hope in empty places. Like, like, don't hear this today as a lesson. Hear this as that poetry, as that song and rhythm. You know how you listen to whatever that song is that just makes you come alive? There's a feeling that I want you to get out of this. I don't want you to use your head as much today as your heart. What is God saying to you? Because sometimes, here's what I know, when we're talking about healing, we don't need lessons, we need music. You don't need me up here preaching to you. You need to be singing the words, this is my song in the desert. You are the everlasting God. Those who wait on you will renew their strength. That's what we need is those songs. We don't need uh, principles. We need a long drive in the countryside with the windows down, blaring our favorite song and screaming at the top of our lungs. That's what healing looks like. This is where the prophet starts. He calls God's people, this barren woman, the one who has known nothing but emptiness. He says, I want you in your emptiness to burst into song. Sing through the emptiness. Sing in spite of what you're lacking. Pour it out. Rejoice because you will yet have hope. I wonder if we're talking about the things you need to find healing from, I wonder where the emptiness lies for you. I keep telling you, you need to name it. 
to be willing to go there, to courageous enough to call it what it is. But what if we're talking about these things, and, and when we're talking about these things, what is it that you feel like you've lost? What is it that's lacking? What is, what is missing from you? Is it the person you lost too soon, or the marriage that never became what you thought it could be, or the children you couldn't have, the, the loneliness you didn't think you would face, the abuse that, that wasn't fair? See, there's hope in those empty places. And, and God says here, in your emptiness, that's where life is born. You don't put life in full places. Ladies who've had children, you know that, right? Like you get life in the empty womb. You get life in the empty space. He says, more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. If you've ever talked to anyone who's prayed their way through infertility, who's walked with God, who's adopted when they couldn't have children, they find this, this cherished nature of the life that they found. Carrie and I will talk often of like, what, what was life like before kids? I, I don't know if you guys have this amnesia going on. Like We just can't remember. There's like this black void that we're like, what, what did we do? What did we, how did we spend that time that we don't have now? What the money, what did, what did we do with that money? I'm pretty sure it went to Chick-fil-A, but what did we do, right? But we can't remember because our life became fuller when it was born in the emptiness. See, when you sing, when you worship in the face of the pain in the middle of the wound, that's where life is born. God says, sing, burst into song. So we're going to do something different today. At the end of this sermon, we're going to leave a couple songs out there, and we're just going to worship together. I don't want you to worry about getting out of here, getting to lunch. It's already going to be past 12. Lunch has moved on fast. Go after Jesus now. See, we're singing in spite of the suffering. We're singing out of our barrenness. We're reaching out even from the darkness. And this poem goes on. Look at verse 2. He says this, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Now, I hope you understand this because what he's talking about is their culture of building their, their temporary dwellings or their homes. And, and when a family would build their home or their dwelling place, then when the, the, the oldest son was ready to get married, he would begin to add on and build a place connected to the home of his family and he would go find his bride and he would say listen I have a place prepared for you or I'm preparing a place for you and I will go and finish that place and then I will come and take you to be with me where I am by the way that's what Jesus is talking about he's saying I'm going to marry you you're going to become a part of my family God says enlarge the place of your tent Lengthen it. Verse 3, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. So if our first point is that there's hope in the empty places, and this message goes on and God speaks to his people, and he says, don't just sing out of barrenness. I don't want you just singing out of the emptiness. It's not just about getting better. It's actually about getting bigger. Your healing isn't just about getting better. It's about you getting bigger. So the second point would, would be this. There is territory for you yet to take. There is space that God wants to win from your life. See, if you're here and you know that place of emptiness in your life, the barrenness, that wound that still needs healed, that just keeps hurting, if that's you, listen, I want you to hear this well. God is not just concerned about getting you back on your feet. That's not God's heartbeat. He does want to heal you. He's going to put you back on your feet, but he's not just concerned about getting you back on your feet. He's about getting your feet back to taking territory for the kingdom of God. That's not where it ends. In Joshua chapter 1, I've been reading Joshua, and Joshua is the guy that follows Moses in leadership. By the way, that's a tough act to follow. 
And Joshua, it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, that after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide, he says this, Moses, my servant, is dead. Right? So this is the, the second in command. He's like, the leader's gone. He's dead. Now, then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. And then he says this, God says this, I will give you every place where you set your foot. He says, I know you're hesitant. I know you're timid. I know you've lost the mentor that you looked up to, but every place you step, that's the territory that I'm going to give you. Every place you move, that's where the kingdom of God is going to reign. See, out of the barrenness of our lives, God offers so much that for the Israelites, they can not only hope, but they can also begin to expand. And some of you need this. You need to hear this. See, we say this a lot, and I believe this. You're not finished. Your brokenness has not ended the legacy that you can leave. Your, your wound isn't going to terminate you. There is still hope, but listen closely today. Don't miss this. When I say that, it isn't meant to imply that you can simply get back up and dust yourself off. It's actually intended to mean that there is kingdom work to be done for you. There's territory to be taken from the enemy, and God is ready to send you out on the front lines in spite of and in the power of your wound. And I don't know if you're like me or not, but I've been knocked down and someone sends me back toward the thing that hurt me. The first thing that I have is exactly what God begins to speak to here. Look at verse 4. If God says, get up, go, I want you to go after this. Look at verse 4. Don't be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Now, we're going to come back to the fear and the shame because I think those are enemies of our healing. But notice that God is at first referencing his people as a barren woman, and now the imagery shifts to a woman who's been widowed. There, there's a, a, an inability for God's people at this moment to produce life. They're barren, they're empty, and now there's a loss of what life existed. You're not only barren, but you've been widowed. You've lost your connection to the thing that you love. See, right in the middle of this, what I would call this descent of hopelessness. You're, you're barren and you're, you're widowed. Look at verse 5. Here's what God says. This is the, one of the most beautiful passages. You should hang this on your wall. Anytime you're, you're struggling, just hang this on your mirror, your wall, and read this out loud to yourself. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back. As if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. Now watch, we've had a barren woman, now we've had a widowed woman, and here we have a divorced woman. A wife who married young, he says, only to be rejected, says your God. So we're going to talk about this hope. The Lord is your husband. The maker is the one. He's the one who's going to call you to himself. But this third reference to God's people, they've moved from barren to widowed to now divorced. These states of barrenness, widowhood, divorced, were the lowest of the low in this culture. A woman in any of these postures, let alone all three of them, in the ancient Near East faced a hopeless life. She was considered flawed, could not produce life. She was widowed and alone, and she was rejected by being divorced. Now, please, I know I'm repeating myself, but it is so central to our understanding of the gospel. You've got to get this you got to get this about your healing. Whatever that thing is, if you're really longing for this, God never hesitates to call out our condition. God doesn't hesitate to look at us and say, yeah, you're a wreck. Like, you're lying to yourself. You're broken by your sin. You think you can beat this thing, and you're not going to do it on your own. You're fooling yourself with whatever it is that you're chasing. 
He doesn't shy away from our sinfulness. He, he claims its reality. And friends, we should too. This is why it matters that we name what we need healed from, to come clean. See, for us to become a church where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way, we have to begin to name those things. Listen, can we, can we stop? Could we do this? Christians in the room, if you're not a Jesus follower, you're off the hook now. I'm not even preaching to you for this minute, okay? So just, you just relax, check out, check your phone, whatever you need to do. But if you're a Jesus follower, can we stop being shocked by each other's mess? Can we just stop looking at each other like, oh, how dare you do that? Just because their mess went public and yours is still on your computer at midnight, let's get over it. Let's stop being shocked by each other's mess. Can we stop hiding our own mess? Could we stop? Listen, you're all wearing masks anyway, so don't put on the happy face anymore. Don't hashtag bless yourself when you come to church in the morning. Let's be real about what's going on in our lives. See, we say to our kids, I can't help you if I don't know what's wrong. God can't help us if we don't name what's wrong. We are churches filled with liars, thieves, frauds, failures, cheaters. Amen? Come on, we don't want to amen that very often, and we're all forgiven. Because right in the middle of all this mess, right in the middle of our condition, God says, I'm hosting a wedding for all the liars, cheaters, prostitutes, thieves, frauds, failures, and forgotten. And I want you to not just be at the wedding, I want you to come down the aisle because I am your redeemer. Which is, if you remember our Ruth series several years ago, the word redeemer was goel. It's a kinsman redeemer. It's a tribal term that says when someone suffers, when they're abandoned, when they're widowed or divorced, the redeemer, the closest, the most beloved person in their family, goes out and chase, changes their life by bringing them in. Look at verse 7. For a brief moment, God says, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. I don't like that verse. I don't like the next verse either. In a surge of anger, actually, I don't like the first phrase of each of these verses. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer, your Goel. Listen, this is, this is important. There's a couple of verses that are, I, I think, both comforting and troubling at the same time. God says some disturbing stuff here. He says, I abandoned you. And in a surge of anger, I hid my face from you. But he also says this comforting thing, with deep compassion, I will bring you back. With everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. Now, here's my question as I read this scripture. I hope you're asking this as well. Can these things coexist? Can we serve a God who gets angry and briefly abandons us, but also offers compassion and comfort? No, let me first say what I don't think this is talking about. I don't think these verses are about unjust suffering. I don't think God is, is causing innocent people to suffer or be lost. I don't think that. I know that's a loaded question that we could spend entire weeks on. But I don't think God caused, causes unjust suffering on certain folks because he stopped paying attention for a few minutes and had to check his phone. Like, that's not what I think is going on. I don't have great answers for those questions. But if you read the rest of Isaiah, it's clear this is not what God is talking about. What this is, God's abandonment for this brief moment, his anger at his people is about people consciously rejecting God. It's about people rejecting his laws, rejecting what it means to practice justice. It is a perfect God who can't stomach blatant rejection by a people that he loves. And, and see, this is so critical because if you want to understand the God of such great love and amazing grace that we sing about, you can only understand that God's love if you understand his utter disgust for sin and injustice. You can't understand the fullness of God's love if you don't understand his hatred and anger for sin and injustice. Can I can't tell you the question that I'm getting like at least five or six times a week right now as a pastor? 
Like I walked in the gym the other day and somebody was like, here, 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 I got a question for you, which I'm like, ooh. The question is, what is God doing? And what they really mean is, are the end times happening? That's where we're getting. That's the question that I get again and again and again. And here, here's what I actually think that they're asking. Now, I'm just, we can talk end times over coffee that, that you buy for me anytime you want, okay? I'll, I will be happy to go and sit and talk about that. I think we have enough to figure out living in the present that we got to preach about before you start preaching about Revelation. So when you all get and we get the present figured out, then we'll go to the, do a Revelation series. But let's, let's work on the present right now. But if you want to talk end times, I'll do that. But here, here's what I actually think when people are asking these end times questions. What I actually think is happening is they're, they're chasing self-centered escapism. Now, let me, let me break down for you what I mean by that. We actually, when we're thinking, what is God doing? Are we about to get out of this bad stuff that really has made me uncomfortable for the past five months? We're actually putting ourselves at the center of the world as Jesus' followers, so he must be close to pulling us out of this because, now can I step on some feet? Because that's what mommy and daddy always did for you. When life got hard, they rescued you, so why wouldn't God do the same thing? Surely he's going to blow up and get rid of all those other pagan people that are headed for hell, and he'll get us out of the sinking ship. Isn't that what he did for Noah? Now, I just want to say, I, I think that's wrong. I don't know when Jesus will come back. I, I think he will. I'm not a heretic there, I don't think. And he knows when he'll come back, but that's up to him. The question I think we should be asking is how have we rejected the commands of God? How have we displeased God? Where has God been angry with the condition of our heart and the state of our life? See, listen, friends, the church as we know it right now, if you don't catch this in the wake of our pandemic and all that's happening culturally, politically, nationally, you need to pay attention. As we have known church, it is being dismantled. It is being dismantled. It is shifting. It's changing like many of the systems in our world. And I actually think maybe we need that. Maybe we need to function. The Christian church grew a whole lot more in the first century where they lived under the threat of death, meeting in caves and homes than they ever did when the government said, you are Christians and we bless you. That's what stood in the way of growth. It's being changed. Government systems and powers are shifting, changing, failing. Maybe we need that. And maybe it's not the other party's fault. Empires are coming undone. I think God has had enough in many ways of the injustice that we continue to not only maybe practice, but to ignore. See, if we're living through this current moment, listen, if we're living through this current moment, if you're living through this current moment and you're only asking about the rescue at the end, and you're not asking about the condition of the present of your heart, asking where we need to repent individually and as churches, we are missing the meaning we're missing the opportunity to experience Christ in this moment. When we come undone because of our sin, when the church repents and realizes our own depth of brokenness, then and only then can we come running down the aisle to our maker, our spouse, the one who says, I love you in spite of your tattered wedding dress. Come to me. And that's where we see God's grace. When I realize what a wreck I am, I'll realize how great a Savior God really is. Look at verse 9. Here's what it says. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn, God says, not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. How can he do that? How can God say, I will never be angry, never rebuke you again? You got to go read chapters 49 to 52, where he talks about the Savior who takes our place. 
That's how he cannot be angry with us again. Verse 10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, though pandemics break out all over the world, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. See, the next point I would make to you today is there's a God who stands for you at the altar. These verses are the centerpiece of this first 10 10 verses in this chapter, and it brings us to this other poetic image about our healing and restoration that this God waits for us at the wedding ceremony of our lives. He says, I'm standing here, and, and I'm longing for you. I want you to come home. Come back to the front porch. Come back to the place that I've called you to. In spite of the moments of anger, in spite of my disappointment in your sin, the hurt that it caused you, the unfailing love is being poured out. Just come home. And then he moves from verse 10 into the second part of this chapter. Look at verse 11. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds mesmerizing. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. So this is the second half of this poem, and it's a shift. The metaphor changes. No longer is God comparing his people to a broken woman. Now he uses the image of a damaged city, an embittered metropolis beaten by the weather and given words of comfort that would say, I will rebuild what's been broken down. See, the prophet says God will not only fix the city. He's not just going to fix what you lost. He's not going to just take the parts of you that were broken and put them back together in the way that they should be. Kids, remember that, right? When you were kids and you broke something, you tried to sneak it past mom and dad with super glue. That's not the healing God's doing. That's not what he's going to do. He he says, I I want you to consider this, that, that maybe, whether you believe this image, that God your Savior would possibly make you more beautiful than you were ever before the hurt. That in spite of your wounds, you're going to come back more beautiful than you've ever been. That's what God says here. What if that's true? And then he says this incredible thing. I I, I love this. Verse 13. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. See, listen, if God's talking to a city that he's rebuilding more beautiful than ever before, now he says the generation living in that city, it's not just for you. Your children are going to see this. There's going to be a new legacy. It's a legacy of hope, a new pattern, a new story. All the generations of family brokenness and pain will be torn away, and your children will find more peace than you have ever known. Barren women, can you sing this song? Can we rejoice in this song? There's a phone ringing. Maybe Jesus is saying, hurry up. Verse 14. In righteousness, he says, you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, friends, there's rebuilding yet to take place. And let me, let me shift your thinking with the power of this song. Consider this, and I'm about done, I promise. For some of you, when we talk healing, you have this misconception in your head. You have this image of someone, maybe yourself, finding some kind of peace, even though they can't really forget whatever it was that hurts them. That's kind of what we equate to healing, is that I've just taken whatever hurts, and I just feel better about it. There's just some kind of peace and, and comfort that I've found, and, and I can't forget it, but, but healing looks a little bit like maybe less anxiety or less fear, less depression. It's almost this image of like subdued, placid, calm. Like healing for you boils down to just, if I could just sleep well, that would feel like healing. But God says right here, listen, he says, in righteousness, 
you will be established. See, this isn't placid. This isn't serene. This is holiness. This is a commitment to the the righteousness of God. That's God saying, your foundation is actually going to be different. You equate healing with trying to live your life on the foundation of what hurt you, but managing better than you have. God says, I'm actually going to get rid of the hurt and give you a new foundation of righteousness. You're going to be a city built with new, uh, new bricks, new mortar, new footers. The hurt that has defined you for so long is not going to define you anymore. And then he uses this military imagery, the city-state language. He says, tyranny will be far from you. You have nothing to fear. This is, this is the image not of a quiet city trying to avoid intruders. If we just stay quiet, nobody, it's like Sweden. If we just stay quiet, everybody will leave us alone. I don't know if that's Sweden or not, but felt right. This is the, <laughs> this is the image of a city that doesn't face threat because enemies know better than to mess with it. See, listen, this is the healing God wants to work in your life. Don't miss this. This isn't the one who's learned how to cope with bullies. Just stay low. Don't bother them. This is the one the bullies walk around and go, don't, don't mess with that one. Like, the bullies are scared of this one. Stay away from that one. Friends, God doesn't halfway heal our lives. He doesn't just teach you to cope. He shows you how to attack. He is the one who heals and heals completely. And if you're just trying to get through and you think God's working calmness in your life, I want to say to you, that's great. That's grace. That's the power of God. But that's not the end because there is rebuilding yet to take place. There's more beauty than you've ever known. And he's going to establish your foundation in new ways. See, I'm glad you're comforted, but maybe you're not healed yet. Maybe there are still parts God wants to rebuild, to establish in righteousness, to get the tyranny out of. Don't pull back from that. And then the last couple of verses here, verse 16. See, it's I who created the blacksmith, God says, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it's I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. The poem ends with this kind of truth statement from God. Let me just lay it out for you, God says. It's kind of obscure and at first maybe make us a little nervous. God says he created the source of weaponry. And there's a destroyer. Friends, that's Satan. This is a direct reference to the enemy of our souls. This is Satan. And God created that. And I don't like that. But look at the conclusion to what God says, verse 17. We sang about it earlier. No weapon forged against you will prevail. Now look at somebody around you and say, no weapon's going to win. You guys did that in such a calm, nice, white American way. Oh, you're so sweet. Look at them with a little bit of guts, a little bit of courage, and say, no weapon's going to win against you. Do we really believe this? Listen, friends, and I'm not just playing here. Do we really believe this? See, this has the power to shift everything for us about the way that we live our lives as the people of God, as the kingdom of God. Do you really believe, first of all, do you really believe there are weapons meant to kill you? Do you really believe that there is a destroyer that wants to rip apart your soul? The devil's not some little cute cartoon on Tom and Jerry. He wants to destroy your mind, your heart, your being, your thoughts, your obsessions. He wants to consume all of that and rip apart your life. Do you really believe that there's somebody beside you, the Holy Spirit of God, saying there is no weapon that's going to win? There's nothing that's going to win because I don't know how we look at each other if we don't believe that and say it. Because some of you, I love you to death, but you're letting every weapon win. If it's not the power of God, we're going to miss it. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. He says, this is, this is what you get. This is the legacy that I'm passing down to you. We've moved from verse 1, a barren, widowed, divorced woman singing. God said, sing out. 
to now someone standing strong going, there ain't nothing that's going to win because I've got a heritage that you've never seen before. This is their vindication for me, declares the Lord. God says, I allow the, lap, the weapons that will attack your restoration to exist, but none of them will win. I got you. I got you. That's the Hebrew translation. I got you. I don't know if that's it. I'm going to close with this. There are, he, there are enemies to healing. And as we close this series down, I want you to recognize this. There are enemies to healing, but they're going to fail when we begin to sing. See, I thought about today, and, and I, I really wrestled with it. I thought about putting a soundtrack on as we preached. I wanted to have music going in the background because I wanted, I wanted this image of God saying, whatever's coming at you, whatever's hurting you, just keep singing. Keep singing. And, and I wanted to put one song. I, I didn't know what song to pick because there's so many different generations here. But I wanted to pick one song that everybody knew and, and all the others I didn't want you to know because I knew when that song came on that, that you would ch- totally check out of what I'm preaching because all you could think about were that words to that song. That song would be in your head. Anybody had this experience? Like, that song comes on, and it doesn't matter who's around you and how much you love them. you got to sing that song. Like, I will survive, maybe. That's, that's kind of the song I was thinking you got that song. See, here's what God says. When these enemies come at us, and by the way, the enemies are, are, first of all, fear and terror. There's fear that holds us from pursuing healing. Often our healing has been put on hold because we're afraid. We're afraid to go to the source of the pain. We're afraid to name the source of the pain. We're afraid to call out what the pain is. We're afraid to go back and face the pain. And it's like that splinter in our hand when we're a kid and somebody says, I I can take it out, but you got to let me there with a needle. I don't want the needle. The splinter already hurts bad enough. Yeah, I know, but I can help you if you let me touch it with the needle. That's fear. That's the first enemy. The other, the other enemy that comes against us is shame. See, you're held in a place often where your healing is delayed and, and impeded because God doesn't hold you in the shame that you hold yourself in. God holds you in his hands. You hold you in guilt. God has already released mercy. He's already released forgiveness. You know what would set our churches free to be the very best they could possibly be? Living into freedom and grace and forgiveness. So many of you are so scared to get involved in spiritual leadership because, oh, I don't have it all together. I'm not the pastor. I just am not dumb enough to put the mic down. I'm as much a mess as you are. If you knew the depths of my sin, you would say, get the mic out of his hand. But I do believe, and I think sometimes this is the calling of pastor, to trust God's grace a little more, to say, come on, trust it yourself. Get out of the shame. Get out of the shame of addiction. Get out of the shame of sexual failure. Get out of the shame of family brokenness. Get out of the shame of abuse, of greed, of divorce, of whatever it is, and step towards the freedom that God has for you. Fear, shame. Here's the last enemy. I told you we were preaching today. Criticism is the enemy of healing. See, the Bible doesn't even talk about how we take criticism from ignorant people. Because the Bible ain't got time for that. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. So the right people, the righteous people, the godly people who give you correction, wisdom, accountability, listen to those people. Iron sharpens iron, Proverbs 17 says. One man sharpens another. Do that. But the criticism from people who are not walking with Jesus, move through it. Don't give it time. Don't give it energy. See, I wanted to be preaching this as I will survive was playing in the back because I thought the reality is when we're singing the song that we need to be singing, it doesn't matter what happens around us. It's all we can focus on. 
when we feel barren, when we feel empty, when we feel destroyed, when we feel lost, deserted, divorced, widowed, broken down like the city, God says, sing in spite of that. And that's how we're going to close today. I want the band to come, and I know that it's hot, but you guys got a few more minutes in you, right? <laughs> Let's try that again. Look at your neighbor and say, no weapon's going to win like you really believe it. Because we're going to worship our creator in the face of opposition, in the face of fear, in the face of shame. And church, if I could say one thing to you that we need to learn and grow in as a church, it is the power of song, of corporate worship together. Have you ever had an experience where the, the, the spirit just enters that place because the people of God are together singing out to God? I don't want us to miss that. I don't want us to be so polite. And I know we have to wear masks and it's hot and we got to sing. And we're not sure how to do that. But you know what the early church had to do? They had to dodge rocks. Somebody walked into their meeting and said, no, no, you're not allowed to meet. We're going to throw rocks at your head till you die. You know what it says in Acts that the apostles did as they were in prison? They worshiped all night long. And you know what their worship was? They were singing. They were celebrating. They were rejoicing before God. And so we're going to close this service today to embody worship in the face of opposition. There is trial all over our world right now. There's suffering. There's injustice. There's brokenness. There is a fear of a pandemic. But listen, church, God already has the vaccine for it. God already has the solution too. So we walk in wisdom. But as your pastor, I also want to say to you, you walk in courage. Stop perpetuating the fear. Stop perpetuating the anxiety. Let God bring to life the healing, the hope, the restoration that is given only by His Spirit. If the body of Christ doesn't live into this, we're not being the body of Christ. We have hope. Let's stand and pray together as we begin to sing.